Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. I hope you had a great week. If you celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope you had a great one. At least, you know, if you don't, you might have some days of work, school, depending on what you, you know, where you work at, or if you're going to school. So still, it was uh, some good days to spend some time with family. So I hope you enjoyed them. As always, Let's Talk Micro is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Overcast, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Pandora. Whatever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. I am also on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, and on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1. So go ahead and follow. I always like to post pictures of organisms. I also like to post updates about when the next episode is coming, um, you know, updates of episodes in general. And I also like on social media, I retweet or post um, great pictures from other amazing microbiology pages. You know, there are definitely great pages out there. So go ahead and follow. If you haven't listened to the last two episodes about Molotov, go ahead and do so. Great information. Speaking of which, so the last episode was the second part of a two-part episode on Molotov. Right on the first one, I explained the process of how it works, its components, what does it stand for? So matrix assisted laser desorption, ionization, time of flight, mass spectrometry. So go ahead and listen to that one. And then on the second one, well, let me circle back real quick. Right, so I talk about acquisition, you know, the matrix that we use, how the process work with the works works with the laser. You know, I talk about slides, acquisition, how to apply the organism. Then on the last episode, I talked about, you know, I basically went over pros and cons, how the whole instrument uh, works. It definitely makes it easier for organisms that either in order to perform another method of identification, you will need to have like a lot of colonies, right? For example, if you need to identify yeast, let's say via the use of Vitec, you need a very heavy McFarlane suspension. So if you don't have that many colonies, you will have to sub it out either to like, you know, like some sort of chrome agar or blood agar. And then the next day, perform that ID via Vitec. And then 18 to 24 hours afterwards, then you can have that actual ID. The same thing happens with anaerobes. You know, like as if you haven't listened to the episode of anaerobes, you know, it's a series, go ahead and do that. But, you know, on media, like the CDC, you have facultative anaerobes, right? Enterobacteriale, staph, streb, enterococcus. So if you have growth, if it's not pure growth, right, uh, you need to do an error tolerance test where you sub it out to maybe two blood agar plates or a chocolate and a blood agar and then incubate the chocolate aerobically in case you don't miss a hemophilus and then incubate the blood agar anaerobically. So you're trying to find out if your organism, it's a, you know, obligate, anaerobe versus a facultative anaerobe. So this process takes 
let's say that you have to do an ID on an anaerobe via the use of Vitec. So you perform your tolerance test. That takes one day, maybe two, if the organism is not growing strong. And then the next day, very heavy suspension for the Vitec. And then one more day to get that ID. So for yeast and anaerobes, just with, with a few colonies, you put them on the Molotov, you get the ID, and then you're done. You know, you typically, you don't have to do susceptibilities on yeast depending on, I mean, if it's a, a sterile source, you do. But if not, you can just release the ID and you're done with that portion of the culture. So it makes, it definitely makes it easier. You know, I talked about organisms like Aerococcus, um, you know, group B strep, Staph saprophyticus, which also you don't do susceptibilities um, depending on which area you are on. So then you're done with them. I talked about how with it doesn't differentiate, you know, like if you do a chromobacter, you know, it will always low discriminate between silososinins and dendrificans. And then you will have to do an actual ID that it also is, it low discriminates on members of the Enterobacter cloacae complex. But with that one, you can actually release it as Enterobacter cloacae complex. So it definitely has a lot of advantages. And I talked about some disadvantages that it might promote a little bit of laziness because maybe some younger techs, no offense, might think, why do I need to do all this biochemical testing if I'm gonna get the answer? But as you more experienced techs know, you know, this is the process of repetition. Many things can happen. You can scan the wrong organism, the wrong barcode label. You can scan, you can set up the wrong organism. If you don't know what the colonies look like, you can accept the wrong ID. If you don't know the biochemicals. So this is why we do all this testing and the repetition, repetition and repetition we eventually get to that point that we pretty much, by the time we set it up on a Vita, we set it up on a Maldi-Tof, we know we, we have a good idea of what we are expecting back, what kind of ID. So this is very important. We cannot just stop doing tests because we can end up, you know, releasing the wrong ID and that can put the patient in harm. And like I said, that is unacceptable. So if you haven't listened to all that information, go back and listen to those episodes. It will give you a better understanding of how Molotov works in the lab. So on today's episode, I want to go over Staphylococcus aureus. It doesn't matter if you work in a small lab, large lab. This is one of the most common organisms seen in clinical microbiology. So even if you have a very low volume lab, very tiny lab, you will definitely see Staph aureus, one of the most common organisms. It is a member of the genus Staphylococcus. So like I said, as a clinical microbiologist, you have definitely seen it and work with it. It is isolated in many cultures from various sources. You're doing wounds, you're doing blood cultures. You definitely see Staphylococcus aureus. It is a facultative anaerobe, so like I mentioned, knowing what you know, this means that it will grow anaerobically. 
And so like on a CDC or a blood plate incubated anaerobically, it will grow. It is normal flora of the anterior nares, nasopharynx, perineal area, and skin. And typically infections associated with staph in humans are colonizers. So I also, I always like to mention that my technical terms, you know, I like to use the ASM books and I like to use Bailey and Scott's Diagnostic Microbiology. It's a great resource for students. They have no relationship nor affiliation to this podcast. I think it's a great textbook. So from them, there are three carriers that are associated with colonization. Three types. So persistent carriers, they harbor a single strain over an extended period of time. Intermittent carriers harbor different strains over time. And non-carriers, they do not carry any organisms. So I'm going to circle back. Typically infections associated with staph in humans, they're colonizers. Okay. And then you have three types. Persistent, they harbor a single strain over an extended period of time. Intermittent, they harbor different strains over time. And non-carriers, they do not carry any organisms. So how, how are infections acquired? Well, they are acquired when colonizing strains gain access to normally sterile sites. Uh, this can be via some sort of trauma, an injury, um, a procedure such as surgery. This is the main uh, concern in hospitals. If you work in a microbiology lab, you might have noticed that patients that are undergoing surgery, they have an MRSA PCR order. And I will talk more about MRSA, which is methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So, this is why you want to make sure that staph, you know, staph aureus does not gain access to a sterile site. Uh, and they want to make sure that if the person has it, because of the seriousness of this organism, uh, the methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is when staph is resistant to methicillin and oxacillin, you want to make sure that the patient gets treated. You don't want that organism accessing sterile sites. Staph can be transmitted from person to person or via fomites. And then that person that acquires it becomes colonized with it. And then it could gain access to a normally sterile site. Going back real quick, you know, when I mentioned trauma, a great, a great example, I mean, I, that it was, I don't know if any of you watch the show House, you know, years ago about this doctor, that there was this patient that, you know, that she became very very ill they eventually ended up you know like they put it on um they shut down her immune system after she passed away eventually house found out that we had a brazier like she cut herself and then that's how staph aureus gained access to her body um so she could have been treated i mean by the time they found out it was it was too late unfortunately for this patient but definitely by, by a cut, you know, it, it can be in our skin. We have it. You know, it doesn't cause any harm. But then when there's some sort of trauma, some sort of injury, some sort of procedure, then it can gain access to a sterile site. So I have mentioned that 
So this organism is very serious. So let's talk about virulence and toxins. Now there are several, but I am gonna uh, talk about a few of them. So you have protein A. This is bound to the cytoplasmic membrane of the organism. And it has a high affinity for the FC receptor on IgG molecules, right? So now we're talking about immunology, you know, the FC receptor. So I'm sure that by now you have information floating back, you know, from when you took immunology. Like I said, it has a high affinity for the FC re receptor on, on IgG molecules. This makes Staph aureus able to bind immunoglobulins decreasing the immune-mediated clearance of organisms from the site of infection. You have alpha-toxin. This is a cytotoxin that disrupts smooth muscle in blood vessels and is toxic to erythrocytes, leukocytes, hepatocytes, and platelets. Another one is the pantone valentine leukosetting PVL. This is toxic to white blood cells, preventing clearance of the organism by the immune system. Some examples of toxin-mediated diseases are scalded skin syndrome and toxic shock syndrome. In scalded skin syndrome, there is an exfoliated toxin that splits the intracellular bridges of the epidermidis. This results in extensive sloughing of the epidermidis. This produces a burn-like effect on the patient. Blisters form, and when they break, the top layer of the skin comes off, which looks like a burn. For toxic shock syndrome, there is a toxic shock syndrome toxin, which is also known as parogenic exotoxin C. Symptoms of this condition are nausea, vomiting, and a rash on your palms and soles that looks like sunburn. Another skin infection is impetigo. This involves the epidermis. It produces vesicles that rupture and cross over. Other skin infections are cellulitis and boils. So you can also, in addition to this, Staph aureus can also cause bacteremia, food poisoning, folliculitis, and endocarditis. So like I mentioned earlier, you will definitely see it in the lab a lot. This is a very common organism. And you see like all the you know, skin infection types that, you know, it can cause. So you will definitely see it in a lot of wounds. You know, those of you working on the wound bench, uh, if it's a large lab, I mean, sometimes, you know, because smaller labs, they bunch everything together because there's not enough volume to split it. But in larger hospitals, you have such a high volume that they split the cultures. So... If you're working on the wound bench, you will definitely see it a lot. And also, if you're doing bloods, if you're working on the blood bench, or you will definitely see it a lot, like I said. So definitely a lot of bacteremia and endocarditis, you know, food poisoning, folliculitis. So once again, this is a very serious organism. And since people are carriers, and it can be transmitted from person to person or via fomites, it is a very serious organism in healthcare settings. It is the cause, the cause of nosocomial infections. And do you know what that is? Right? It's hospital-acquired infections. The patient, you know, you go in for something else, 
let's say you're having some sort of surgery, you get admitted because you know you have some sort of disease, some some sort of infection going on. You get admitted and then you acquire an infection in the hospital. So that's what nosocomial is. Hospital acquire. It can be transmitted by healthcare workers due to lack of hygiene. You know, this is those of us that work in the lab, that works in hospital. I mean, you know how much infection prevention, they stress the fact that we need to wash our hands properly. We need to use our equipment. So they always say, you know, hand washing, hand washing, hand washing, hand washing. And it should take about 20 seconds when you're washing your hands. Those of you that works in hospitals or some sort of healthcare setting, you hear the term, you know, that you sing the happy birthday song twice, and that's enough time for you to properly clean your hands. So us as healthcare workers, especially those of you that directly deal with patients, I mean, we still have to practice hygiene in the lab, in the clinical lab. Uh, we know we definitely deal with a huge variety of organisms. So we have to make sure that we wear our equipment, you know, our gloves, our, our gown, you know, our eyewear. When we work with this stuff, and hand washing is also very important. Well, those of you, and let me circle back. I'm sure that, you know, some older techs out there don't want to put you on the spot. But some of you definitely like to work sometimes, you know, without gloves. And that's, that shouldn't be the case. I mean, I know everyone has their system and people that work without gloves, they say, oh, I have my system. It's not really a good practice. We definitely need to be wearing gloves. Remember, in the lab, we have universal precautions, right? Which are we treat every substance, every sample as if it is potentially infectious. So we shouldn't be handling them without gloves. Now, having said that, those of you that directly work with patients, it is also very important that you wash your hands, right? Every time you have contact with a patient, you remove your gloves, wash your hands, and then you're going to have contact with another patient. You put on gloves, and every time you remove gloves, wash your hands. So, like I said, so this is why it's so important to always wear your PPE, personal protective equipment, and perform hand hygiene after removing gloves and having contact with patients. This organism can exhibit a resistance to oxacillin, which is a synthetic form of penicillin. And this is what is called an MRSA, which is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Very serious in hospital environments. The patients, they can get infections such as bacteremia, which is life-threatening. Proper disinfection of hospital rooms, it's also very important, right? So what's a, I mentioned fomites. What's a fomite? Well, it is an object, right? An inanimate object that it can be used to transmit the infection, you know, like the organisms can be transmitted to another person via the use of these objects. So they're not, they're inanimate, like hospital equipment. So you're touching things with your gloves, and then another person, then maybe they touch that object, they handle the patient, and then they transmit the organism to the patient. Very important that in addition to washing your hands and making sure you change gloves between patients, 
It is also very important that the hospital equipment, you know, respirators and other objects, they get properly disinfected. That way you limit you know, the spread of these organisms. And I always like to mention this story about a friend nurse that I have that they had an acinetobacter, you know, very resistant acinetobacter. A patient had it. And then two months after the discharge, they were still culturing objects in the room and they were still getting this organism. So you imagine how important this whole cleaning process is. Because, yeah, these organisms, I don't know, maybe some of you students out there are thinking, what? Yeah, these organisms, they can survive in hospital equipment and they can be used to transmit infection. So in summary, this organism has a lot of virulence, a lot of toxins. So once again, it is very serious. So this is an organism that we need to work up in most cases that we encounter in the clinical lab. By most cases, I mean most sources. We definitely need to work it up. And by work it up, it means producing an ID, an identification, and susceptibilities and find out whether it's MRSA or MSSA, which is methicillin susceptible Staphylococcus aureus. So before the next episode, go ahead and go back to catalase, coagulase. If you haven't listened to those episodes, go ahead and do so. That way, on the next episode, when I start talking about ways to identify Staph aureus, you're familiar with it. And that, my dear audience, is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening about Staph aureus. As always, I enjoyed talking about it. This is a summary of, of Staph aureus. Of course, there's a lot of information out there. There's many experts on this matter. This is a concise way of putting it, you know, for students, for techs, for microbiology students that they will give you a better understanding of this organism. So go back and listen to the previous episodes about you know, like catalase, coagulase. But as always, stay motivated, stay safe. And of course, well, and always before I continue, keep bringing that passion to what you do. Such a great work we do, such great work. So stay safe, stay motivated, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time, bye.